I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 331. One of the best things about having young children is getting to watch kid movies and it's no one thinks it's weird or creepy. Uh, I, I, li- I like Kung Fu Panda just as good as I like any other film I've ever seen. I was thinking this week though about how our concept of heroes and villains must surely get shaped by the stories we take in at a young age. And when you watch a lot of kids' movies, there's not often a lot of ambiguity about who the good guy and who the bad guy is. Sometimes the villains are announced in obvious ways at the beginning of the story. Sometimes we're just told flat out this is the bad guy. Sometimes they're given names that clue us in Scar, um, Cruella DeVille, I mean literally cruel devil. It doesn't get much more on the nose than that. Other times their evil plans uh, become clear only toward the end of the story. Sometimes you, you may think someone's a good guy, but then by the end of the movie, there's little doubt about who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. When we read the Bible, however, we have to exercise a little bit more caution than that. For one thing, you always have to remember when you're reading a Bible story that you're not reading the Bible story. And what I mean by that is, this is, is not a, an anthology, it's not a collection of disjointed stories. It's all one big story. And so anytime you're reading one little story, you're just reading a little snippet. You're reading just one little scene, one part of it. And so Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, these are important characters, but they're ultimately only supporting characters. The protagonist of the story all the way through is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, It is Jesus, not any other human character who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And on top of that, God is the only character in the story who is unambiguously good. All the supporting characters, even the ones who are generally good, are flawed and imperfect. We need to keep that in mind. I want us to keep that in mind as we read this morning. David is the one in focus for us. But he is only a supporting character in the big story of Scripture, and he is not the hero, capital H. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but let's start with just one verse, uh, 2 Samuel 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that um, the purpose of this book is to tell us about You. Lord, You have revealed Yourself here. And You have shown us truths about Yourself and about us. I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, help us by Your Spirit to do that this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to cover all of chapter 8 and 9 this morning because they make a little bit more sense when you take them together than if you try to understand them separately. So I'm going to do a good bit of summarizing. and I want to put everything that we're going to see in these chapters under the banner of this big idea, that our security in God's covenant faithfulness frees us 
to display God's covenant faithfulness to others. We'll talk about what we mean by covenant faithfulness. But we have security in that. It's something that does not come and go. It is rock solid, always everlasting, always staying the same. And our security in that covenant faithfulness frees us to display that covenant faithfulness to others. It is not an accident that chapter 8 begins with the phrase, after this. It's one of those phrases that ought to make you ask, after what? Uh, what just happened in chapter 7? Well, in chapter 7, God laid out a series of really astounding promises to David, promises that extended beyond David's lifetime into eternity. God used words like forever and promises that extended beyond David's family to encompass the whole world. And so when the author says, after this, he intends for us to understand that what happens here in chapter 8 is a continuation of David's response to those promises of God's covenant faithfulness in chapter 7. At the end of 2 Samuel 7, David poured out his heart in praise and petition before God. And here in chapter 8, we see him now taking action. Chapter 8 is all about David's victories over these surrounding nations. God had promised him in chapter 7... I will make for you a great name. I will uh, give you rest from all your enemies. And chapter 8 is a record of God keeping that promise to David. What you see is God is giving him rest from all his enemies. And it tells us specifically which ones. What I want you to notice is how active David is in this. It's, it's not like David sits back and says, Okay, God, I'm going to wait for you to do your promise. No, David goes out and he acts in accordance with what God had promised him. We, we already read in verse 1 where it says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. So God had promised David that he was going to give him rest, but that didn't mean that David was supposed to just sit at home on his couch. He was supposed to go out and fulfill his responsibilities as king. And that's what he did. He went out and he defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Then verse 2, notice, and he defeated Moab. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. On and on this goes. Look down at verse 6. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And notice there at the end of verse 6, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That last phrase in verse 6 is, is crucial because God had promised him, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. Now we're told in verse 6 that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So his, his actions, going out and fulfilling his responsibilities, his actions are sandwiched between the promise of God saying, here's what I'm going to do for you, and the statement of, well, that's what God did for him. God gave him victory wherever he went. So David defeated all these different enemies because the Lord gave him victory wherever he went. In fact, the author even tells us about one king whose name was Toy. Verse 9, when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health. 
and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. But what's going on here? Well, Toy and Hadadezer were enemies, and David defeated Toy's enemy, and so he said, hey, why don't we be friends? That's uh, kind of a way of saying, hey, don't come and subdue us. And so he sends his own son as an envoy to David. And notice what David does in verse 11. These also, that is the gold and silver and bronze that were sent to him, these also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So, uh, two, there are a lot of details in chapter 8. It would be easy to get bogged down or confused by all these details. A lot of this is foreign to us. What does it mean? The... Uh, Edomites and Moabites and Ammonites and Philistines and Amalekites and all these different people. Here, here's, here's the point, okay? Two key statements that really comprise the heart of the whole chapter. First is the statement in verse 6 and then again at the end of verse 14 that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That phrase is repeated twice. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's one summarizing truth of chapter 8. And the other one is verse 15 that David administered justice and equity to all his people. So those are, those are the two things you need to take away from chapter 8. God was giving David victory everywhere he went. And everywhere David went and had victory, everywhere his kingdom was expanding, he administered justice and equity to all his people. So to state it in terms of the big idea... Being a recipient of God's covenant faithfulness freed David to be an instrument of God's covenant faithfulness by fulfilling the responsibilities that God had given him as king. Now, you and I have, we do not have the same kind of responsibilities within God's kingdom as David did. So the, the takeaway here is not go out and fight all your enemies or anything like that. In fact, we know in the New Testament we're told the opposite of that, right? We're told to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us and that sort of thing. So our responsibility is not like David to go out and fight. But the underlying truth is the same. Our security in God's covenant faithfulness frees us to display His covenant faithfulness to others. So whatever it is that, whatever responsibilities God has given us within His kingdom... His promises to us ought not make us lazy in doing those responsibilities, in obeying Him. His faithfulness to us doesn't make us sort of sit back and do nothing. His faithfulness ought to make us all the more active, all the more 
zealous for good works, as Paul says in Titus 2. He says, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So the fact that God has shown us such mercy by by sending Jesus, and the fact that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for Himself, that does not make us sit back and do nothing. That ought to make us zealous for good works. And if that truth is not making us zealous for good works, well, then there's a disconnect somewhere and we're, we're missing something. So if, if the key words of chapter 8 are victory and justice. God gave David victory and he administered justice. If those are the key words of chapter 8, the key word of chapter 9 is kindness. I want you to look with me at chapter 9 verse 1. Listen for the word kindness. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now before we get to the son of Jonathan and what David does for him, just pause there and, and ask, why would David want to show kindness to Saul's household? That's the question he asks. Is, is there someone from the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? He, he's not sitting around waiting. Well, maybe if there's somebody, maybe they'll cross my path, you know, in God's providence. No, he's, he's going out asking, is there someone to whom I can show kindness? And he's not just asking, is there someone in, in general, but specifically someone from the house of Saul. Why would David want to show kindness to the house of Saul? After all, Saul hated David. Um, Saul tried on many occasions to kill David. Saul made David's life miserable for years and years. It would make sense that David would honor Saul while he was king, but Saul is now dead. And it would not be difficult to imagine David saying, Okay, Saul's dead. Good riddance to him. I hope I never see anybody from his family ever again. Surely, we would think, his obligations are expired. Again, of course, we would not expect David to go looking for Mephibosheth to harm him. But I think we would understand if David just wanted to leave him alone and do nothing one way or the other. But notice the phrase at the end of verse 1, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Two important truths there, kindness and for Jonathan's sake. Let's start with kindness. The word kindness there in chapter 9 verse 1 and again in verse 3 where he says that I may show the kindness of God to him. That word means something more than niceness or politeness, or gentleness. He's not simply saying, um, you know, is there something nice I could do for some family member of Saul? This word that is translated kindness in verse 1 and verse 3 is one of the most important words 
in First and Second Samuel and in the Old Testament as a whole. It's, it's used some 250 times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is chesed, and uh, it basically means something like covenant love uh, and faithfulness. It's sometimes translated as mercy, as loving kindness, as steadfast love, as loyalty. Hesed refers to not just a feeling of love, but to love that is backed up by a promise. Love that is faithful and enduring and never gives up. In fact, the Jesus Storybook Bible has this really beautiful way of describing this. It, it calls this kind of love a wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Now, that's a description, of course, of God's hesed. God's hesed is perfect. His covenant faithfulness is perfect. But while humans cannot love with the same perfection with which God loves, we can practice Hesed. We can practice covenant faithfulness. It's any kind of love that's backed by a promise. Any kind of love that does not quit when things get inconvenient. Although Saul hated David and tried to kill him, Saul's son Jonathan had practiced this kind of love toward David and vice versa. I want you to hold your place here in 2 Samuel 9 and turn back just a few pages maybe to 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. I want you to notice this event that takes place between David and Jonathan. This is one of the times when Jonathan helped David escape from his father Saul. In fact, this is the point when David is really starting to realize that he may need to go into hiding for a while because Saul is not going to give up until he kills him. And so Jonathan and David, Jonathan is, they're, they're working out this way that Jonathan's going to warn David if he's in danger. And if he's in danger, then he's supposed to flee. And, and so there's a, this implicit understanding between them, we may not ever see each other again. If David escapes, he may go off to who knows where, and he may die, or I may die, and this may be the last time we see each other. And so, look at verse 14. This is Jonathan speaking to David, 1 Samuel 20, 14. If I am still alive, that is, when you return, when you become king, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. So, if you want to underline that steadfast love, that's has said, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your said, your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Alright, so show me, if, if I'm alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. But if not, then don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Even if I'm dead... I'm still holding you to this promise. Now let's turn back to 2 Samuel 9. The events of 2 Samuel 9 take place many, many, many years after that covenant. David could easily move on with the important matters of administering justice and equity in his kingdom. Again, 
We can, we can imagine a scenario where David just says, I'm just going to leave Mephibosheth alone. He, he doesn't even know if Jonathan has any children, so if he could just kind of assume for the sake of convenience, well, Jonathan's dead, and so my, my obligations to him are over. And I have, I'm, I'm the king, by the way. I have lots of important things to do. I've got battles to fight, and I've got justice and equity to administer. I don't have time to go worrying about whether there's someone to whom I need to show kindness. But here we find David living up to his word, keeping his covenant promise to Jonathan that he would not cut off his steadfast love from Jonathan's house forever. And in so doing, he was, as he says in verse 3, showing the kindness of God to the son of Jonathan. I want you to look again at chapter 9, verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? That's what Jonathan had asked David to do. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of God. Well, Jonathan is not still alive. He is not around for David to be able to show the steadfast love of the Lord to him, but he can show the steadfast love of the Lord to his son, Mephibosheth. Now, we have already been introduced to Mephibosheth a few chapters ago, uh, and we heard that he was crippled after an accident when he was a child. You don't need to be reminded of that because everything we need to know about him we're told here in chapter 9. We're told at the end of verse 3, Ziba tells David there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So we're reminded of this disabled state. Now I want to be clear. I'm going to sort of talk about Mephibosheth from an ancient perspective. I want to be clear, we know that everyone, no matter their level of ability or disability, is created in God's image and therefore has just as much dignity as any other person. In fact, it's striking when you hear the prophets describe the kingdom of God that is coming, um, how often they refer to the fact that it's going to bring in the lame and the poor and the blind and the mute and the outcast, all these different people who were considered to be shamed in their culture. The, the prophets talk about the kingdom of God is going to include them. And then you see Jesus doing that, don't you, in the Gospels. He, he says the kingdom of God is at hand and He does the very thing that the prophets said the kingdom would do. He includes the lame and the uh, crippled and the poor and the outcast. He calls them to Himself and even heals them as a sign of this is what the kingdom of God will be when it is here in its full and final state. There will no longer be any disability. There will no longer be any kind of uh, thing that might bring shame upon a person. In the ancient world, Mephibosheth's crippled state would have been considered by others to be a shameful existence. It would have made him an outcast. It would have made him undesirable. In fact, names are often significant. And the, the name Mephibosheth, the, the, the word Bosheth that you see at the end of his name, Bosheth, means shame. So he literally has shame in his name. Mephibosheth means something along the lines of out of the mouth of shame. Now what's more, despite his condition, David could have easily viewed Mephibosheth as a rival 
as someone who needed to be disposed of. We've already seen in 2 Samuel how there was Ishbosheth, which meant man of shame. Uh, he was one of Saul's other sons, and we saw where he was sort of used kind of as a puppet to try to set up this rival kingdom to David. So just the existence of Mephibosheth, him being the grandson of Saul, someone could have tried to use that as a way of calling David's kingship into question. And so David could have viewed Mephibosheth as an inconvenient person to be around. And with all of that in mind, I want you to think about what might have gone through Mephibosheth's mind when King David summoned him. We're not told what, was, what he was thinking, but we are told what he did. Notice what the author tells us in chapter 9, verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Again, we don't know what Mephibosheth was thinking, but if he knew anything about kings in the ancient world, he would know that... Uh, He's at risk here. And his posture certainly seems to indicate someone who is fearful of what might happen to him. He was disabled in his feet, not in his mind, by the way. Listen to what David says to him in verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. When I read that this week, I was thinking about that, and one of the thoughts that came to my mind was the thought of the disciples after the, res after the, the crucifixion, um, after the resurrection, huddled in the, in the upper room. And Jesus comes, and what's the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. It's the same, same thing that David says to Mephibosheth. He, he calms his fear. Do not fear. You don't have to be afraid. I don't mean you any harm. In fact, I want to show you kindness. I want to show you steadfast love. I want to be the instrument of God to show you His covenant faithfulness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And what this means, Mephibosheth, is that I am going to restore to you all that has been taken away from you. I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. I'm going to restore your inheritance to you, Mephibosheth. And not only that, you, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table always. If that's not a picture of the gospel, then I don't know what is. In Romans 5, Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that God does not wait for people to come to Him and seek reconciliation. Instead, God came to us in the person of Christ. And Christ died for us while we were His enemies, while we were sinners. Paul hammers this point home three times in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for righteous people, but He died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8 God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. 
while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were crippled, you might say. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That truth resounds from Calvary, but it was already being whispered here in 2 Samuel 8. Here you have this picture. You have the king who summons one who some would say is his enemy. And he summons his enemy to him, and rather than striking him down in wrath, he shows kindness, covenant mercy, steadfast love to him, not for Mephibosheth's sake, but for the sake of the king's faithfulness to his promise, because he had made a promise that he would not cut off his steadfast love. What's more, David does not just show a single act of mercy to Mephibosheth. It would be, it would be amazing enough if David said, I want you to come and just spend the weekend with me and stay with me and eat at my table. But he says to him at the end of verse 7, You shall eat at my table always. You, 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 you have an open invitation, Mephibosheth. In fact, the author of 2 Samuel hammers that point home for us. In verse 10, David tells Saul's servant Ziba that Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. The author tells us at the end of verse 11, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And one last time in verse 13, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. We should marvel at David's kindness to Mephibosheth only because it pictures God's kindness to David and to us. David knew the kindness and mercy of the Lord. He, he had been pursued for many years by Saul. Mephibosheth's grandfather for years and years had pursued David and tried to kill him. But what motivates David in this moment is not what Mephibosheth's grandfather had done to him, not how Saul had pursued him with violent hatred, but how the Lord had pursued him with abundant kindness. David was not thinking of how Saul had driven him into the wilderness. He was thinking about how the Lord had been his shepherd who made him lie down in green pastures. And because David was secure in the Lord's kindness to him, he was able to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. David did for Mephibosheth what God had done for David. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David calls Mephibosheth to him, and he comforts him, and he says, Do not fear. Because David knew that kind of mercy, he was able to look at this trembling Mephibosheth and say, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. David did for Mephibosheth what God had done for him. God, uh, David said of God, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Because David knew that kind of covenant faithfulness, he prepares a table for Mephibosheth. He invites him to his own table, even as one of his own sons. Not just for a single meal, but for all his days. David said in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's what he does for Mephibosheth. I will not cut off my steadfast love for you all the days of your life, and you, Mephibosheth, will dwell in my house forever. 
when you have that kind of rock-solid security in the covenant faithfulness and love of God, it frees you to show that same kind of kindness and love to others. The security of God's steadfast love frees us from the insecurity of fearing man. Here's an even simpler way of putting it. Those who know God's kindness and mercy show God's kindness and mercy. When you know God's kindness and mercy, you show God's kindness and mercy. So I want, I want us to ask ourselves a diagnostic question this morning. I often find it helpful to ask myself a, you know, a probing question. And here, here's the question for us today. Do I consistently show the steadfast love of God in my thoughts, feelings, attitudes, and actions? I'll say that again. Do I consistently show the steadfast love of God in my thoughts, feelings, attitudes, and actions? And we could add words to that as well. Thoughts, feelings, attitudes, words, and actions. If you are not a merciful person, it may be that you have never truly grasped and taken hold of God's mercy to you. That's the point of Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, the man who is forgiven a totally unpayable debt, and then he goes out and he holds someone to a much smaller debt and throws them in jail for it and doesn't show them mercy. Jesus says that man never truly understood mercy and forgiveness. So if you're an unmerciful person, it may be that you've never truly grasped God's mercy to you. If you're unconcerned with justice and righteousness, with truth, it may be that you have not genuinely come to terms with the justice and righteousness and truth of God that led Jesus to the cross. If you are unforgiving and spiteful, it may be that you have not truly received God's forgiveness yourself. Those who know God's character show God's character. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you do that always. But the question is, do I consistently show the steadfast love of God in my thoughts, feelings, attitudes, words, and actions? It ought to strike us. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, said to people who profess to be Christians... This was, not, this was not him speaking to people who were professed unbelievers, but to people who professed to be Christians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's, that's, that's God-inspired right there. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. So you need to do that this morning. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's one way you could do that is ask yourself, do I consistently show the steadfast love of God and the justice of God and the truth of God in my thoughts, feelings, attitudes, words, and actions. If you are in the faith, then you ought to be striving to show God's character in every area of your life. Thoughts, feelings, attitudes, words, actions. The way to grow in that is by meditating on the perfect character of God and asking Him to help you display it accurately. Um, I've been told before, I, I don't really know how true this is, but I've been told that you know, the Secret Service, other than doing security, one of their 
tasks is uh, to work with counterfeit, to, to discern counterfeit money. And the way they do that is not by looking at all the different kinds of counterfeit money that exists, but the way they do that is they, they study genuine money. They, they just look at it and they examine every feature of it. They know it backward and forward. They probably know things about it that we don't know. And uh, they become so familiar with something that's authentic that when they see something inauthentic, it just screams off the page. It just stands out all the more. The way, if you want to display the authentic character of God in your life, the way to do that is not by looking around at all the inauthenticity you see in other people, but by looking to the perfect character of God and examining it and turning it over, meditating on it, and asking Him, please, by Your Spirit, help me to be that. Help me to show that. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you, pray with you this morning. The altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your covenant faithfulness to us. Lord, totally undeserved. All of us spiritually are like Mephibosheth before You, disabled and shamed and um, counted as Your enemies, and yet You have shown us mercy and extended grace, not just to pardon, but to welcome us into Your own family. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning You would help us to be amazed by that truth, and God, also that we would, as we meditate on that truth of Your character, of Your forgiveness and Your faithfulness and loyalty and Forgiveness, God, that we would examine ourselves, as Paul told us, as you commanded us in your word, to see whether we're in the faith, to see whether we truly uh, are your children, because we know that your children display your character. God, help us to do that. Help us to be honest in our hearts, to examine ourselves. And God, that we would uh, desire to walk with you in faithfulness, and that our desire would be to show your faithfulness to others around us. Uh, God, help us now as we sing this hymn of response to do so in, in genuine faith and repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.